Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And now, for tonight's event, we have Glenn David Gold, who's the author of Sunnyside and Carter Beats the Devil, which has been translated into 14 languages. His short stories and essays have appeared in McSweeney's Playboy and the New York Times Magazine. He lives here in Los Angeles. And um, he's here for his new book, I Will Be Complete, which Jim Ruland says... While life may be ruled by chance, memoirs are not, and Gold delivers a conclusion for the ages that involves a dramatic confrontation with the shadowy figure from his childhood. I Will Be Complete is an audacious boundary-shattering work that will be talked about for a long time. Here he is. Hello, everybody. I, uh, my, my, my friend, uh, I have a friend, Karen, who said that, um, Every time you go out to do a reading, always put a $20 bill in your front pocket, and if you can take the entire audience out for beer for the 20 bucks, do that instead of reading. <laughs> Sorry, you guys are getting a reading. Oh, man. I know, I know. So close. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming out tonight. I really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, the book came out two days ago, and so it's always hard to know if anybody gets the word that it's out, but uh, I'm going to read to you from the very beginning. It's going to take about 15 minutes, um, and afterwards I'd love to take questions if uh, anybody has any, um, and uh, we'll just go from there. How's that sound? Okay, yes. Okay. A note on the accuracy of the text. My mother assures me none of this happened. Address unknown. I think you're an adult when you can no longer tell your life story over the course of a first date. I might have gotten this idea from my parents because they reinvented themselves so often. Their stories have odd turns, which speak not of one life, but of many that don't seem to match up, and of choices you think no one would actually make. When I was 12 years old, I lived by myself for a while. This was the mid-1970s in San Francisco, so the rules were a little different then, but not so different that me living alone made much sense. When I describe what happened, people tend to ask, how did you end up so... They dance around the word normal, then realize it doesn't apply. And instead they say, so nice. I'm not nice. I'm polite. Nice is a quality and polite is a strategy. But I've ended up happy. Also, I've ended up something more unusual than that, autonomous. I have a good memory, but lately I've been looking for people who might know more, and I come up empty. Life in the 1970s led to a lot of bad luck and unintended consequences. Perversely, I'm relieved when I learn that some people I wanted to talk to are dead. But then I find one man I don't actually want to, Peter Charming. He's almost invisible, but I'm good at research. He has no business licenses. He doesn't own property in his name. The house he lived in when I knew him turns out to have belonged to somebody else. And even his 1970s phone number is assigned to a different person in old directories. I can't find any criminal records, though those are difficult to get to the bottom of. The San Francisco Superior Court, however, provides some sheet music in a way, and it's up to me to imagine the score. There are civil lawsuits. In some, he's the defendant, and in others, he's the plaintiff. One of them went on for seven years and struggled all the way to trial twice. There are ways the mind pushes back against knowing too much. You research too long. 
You obsess over irrelevant details. You amaze the world by how unfazed, how nice you seem. You discount cruelties as if they're anecdotes best brought out in a barroom competition. You also tend to say you when you mean I. When I was a kid, Peter was bad to my mom. She managed to escape it, but at a cost. I don't know if the damage he inflicted upon her was worse financially or emotionally. In our family, money is a convenient cipher for the wounds that are harder to qualify. Accounting for his charisma and promises, you could reduce him to an elemental force that moved my mother and me forward, then backward, then apart. My mother is much more important, but when I think of looking directly at her, I reflexively retreat into research. I would rather look into Peter's life again than my mother's. People leave San Francisco, but something always gets left behind, and usually it's gossip. I've mentioned his name to people who are in that social circle, and it's like he never existed. I'm sure they met him, and I don't think they're lying when they say they don't remember. He was at a time and a place that are gone. It's like asking about a statue in a park, now the site of a high-rise. What happened to that old bronze bust? Don't you remember it? His picture is in the Society column of the San Francisco Chronicle in the late 1960s, and he looks young. He hasn't learned arrogance yet. Instead. He looks just shy of self-confident, asking the camera to confirm it sees him as handsome. He's an escort for women who are older. They have their own money, and my hunch is that when they stopped seeing Peter, they still had all of it, minus what they'd given him knowingly. That was before the 1970s, the time that was made for him. One person reacted to his name once, at a party sometime in the 1980s, I met a novelist whom I knew by reputation. A happy bullshit artist, in the way of those beats who made careers in academic posts by writing out the ambiguity of whether they'd actually had Kerouac sleep on their couch. I was 22, the novelist was in his 60s. He was talking to a beautiful woman who held her drink with both hands and who regarded him with suspicion like he was about to offer her candy. As I was walking by, he brought me into the conversation, which I recognized as a gambit, to make her reduce her grip on her glass to one hand, to let the other settle to her hip. Excuse me, he said to me. You look part English. That's true. Is the other part Jewish? I asked that as a full Jew myself. <laughs> it is. I've often thought the combination of English and Ashkenazi makes the most handsome man in the room. Don't you agree? He asked this toward the girl, who was noncommittal. This fine woman, he said a few minutes later, hasn't decided to leave her husband for me, but I can't say I blame her. The question is whether she's going to expand her horizons or let them stay as they are, I said. He started to say something he prepared, but he faltered. The conversation continued the way he was driving it as before, but his interest in her, obligatory as it already was, was complicated by this. I wasn't a chump. I've been moderately funny, but I haven't tried to compete. I was staying in the conversation to make him look good. That's a set of skills that develops in unusual circumstances. After the woman left for better prospects, he wanted to know about me. How did you come to San Francisco, he said. My mother met a man at the Mark Hopkins Hotel. When that was all I said, he laughed. What is it about the Mark Hopkins, anyway? I said, she met a man who said he wanted to buy her a balloon and take her to Paris. I have to stop short my writer's memory, the desire to underline. 
I can't claim that he froze his wrist just as the drink was about to meet his lips. I think I knew that man, he said. You knew Peter Charming, I asked. When he spoke again, it was with caution. Do you know where he is still? Are you friends with his people? No, not anymore, I said. It was unnerving to see a man like the novelist, whose identity pivoted on tall tales, sweep my eyes with conviction to see if I were telling the truth. How would he know if I was sincere? He asked my mother's name. I told him. He squinted. Vaguely, he thought he remembered her, but he wasn't sure. Is your mother all right? No, I said. I'm sorry. I'm never sure what to say when people have to say that about her. Finally, the novelist said, Charming was doing terrible things. I know. You knew? He looked alarmed. It was as if I were aware of atrocities, but had done nothing. It was the 70s, he said. Some of us fell victim to improving ourselves in ways that turned out silly. It was a silly decade. People took advantage of that. Charming was bad. I heard bad things. Like what, I asked. White slavery, he said. I'd seen some things, but no, I hadn't seen that. I wanted the conversation to last longer, but another woman walked by, as pretty as the last, and in mid-sentence, the novelist waved her down, introducing us. He told her I was her He told her I was his son. As I shook hands with her, he made up a biography for me. I was the spawn of his second marriage. I was out from Cleveland. I was on the crew team at my college. Didn't I look just like him? As he spun the story, I went along with it. He said my mother, his ex-wife, was English, and he felt that the combination of English and Ashkenazi Jew was the most handsome on earth. Hadn't he done right by me? Wasn't I a wonder? Later, I phoned my mother to tell her much of this conversation. I treated our talks back then like trips down hallways with certain rooms under lock and key, but I didn't think about why I was so careful. I told her about the novelist introducing me as his son, which she found delightful. I didn't say he'd asked if she was okay, or that I'd said she wasn't. What did he say about Peter, she asked. He said Peter was involved in white slavery? I rarely speak with that uptick, but I was asking a question as subtly as I knew how, which was not very subtly at all. What exactly were Peter's limits? She answered in a way that I would have said I felt nothing about. Oh, Peter. You know, it was just so hard to stay mad at him. He was like a big kid. And there it was, that statement I felt nothing about, remembered for decades when I had long forgotten the details of birthdays and first kisses. How did I really feel? I felt a hot, dry, constricting tension that I did not allow a dominion over me. I felt like I wanted the conversation to be over so I could tell people about it and read from their faces how I should feel. Might it be disturbing that my mother had suggested human trafficking was forgivable, if not childlike? I'm not asking that rhetorically. I'm looking for confirmation. I look to you. You nod. I nod back. <laughs> How do you feel, Glenn, about a man you knew well, perhaps being the worst sort of human being? With pride in my voice at my own detachment, I would say nothing. And upon your suggestion, probably unspoken, probably just a puzzled squint that I'm trained to look for, that someone more fully aware might feel something, I would think, no, I'm too strong for that. Nothing can touch me. And that reaction is what this story is about. 
For much of my life, there's been a circuitous pathway between when something happens and when I react. This gives the illusion of stillness, when in fact it's about trying to accommodate too much all at once. I do not have feelings so much as I gauge what a loved one would want me to feel, and I tell myself about that. Perhaps that's familiar to you. Have you ever used the key on the lock of an old mountain cabin, felt it stick, and tried to imagine its teeth engaging tumblers? Have you tried making friends with its unknowable history, coaxing it into unfreezing? And have you promised yourself you will not get into a burst of anger that could snap it in half? Then you'll know what it's like to be my mother's son. It's exhausting, and it's where art forms are born. I think Baroque draftsmen who made etchings of labyrinths were men raised by shattered women. Peter Charming is tar part of the story, but really, I'm looking for my mother, or what remains of her. There's not going to be redemption here, nor am I going to indict her as a monster. There's another way to go for those of us who can no longer love our mothers. I've learned compassion for her, what an old friend calls compassion from a distance. My mother's life has been a tragedy, but mine has not. And let's be honest here, my mother is not the story either. I'd like to tell you about myself, which makes me want to apologize, the way my needing anything always does. I place a high value on autonomy. When I was so young that my memories were hardly even meant to be permanent, three or four years old, my parents and I were watching television. I saw actors talking to camera. It impressed my parents. They said there was something sophisticated in admitting that the scene had an audience. So while I was hammering the clippers of my pinball machine or sinking shampoo bottles in the bathtub as if they were my great-grandfather's U-boat, I began talking to camera myself. I knew it wasn't real, but it was vivid. When I was alone in a room, I was never alone, for there was an audience I was meant to entertain. After I was put to bed time and again, my mother or father had to come in the room to tell me to be quiet because I was telling the news of the day to my invisible confederates whom I loved for giving me a purpose. There is a rule I hewed to like it was superstition. In bed, lights out. I only had to talk until I described my day well enough that it felt true. There was a comforting assurance that if I told the story right, I could finally go to sleep. This feeling has never left me. Now I tell myself that if what I say here is true, I will be complete and that is what I'm looking for too. Thank you. I find there's a certain tension when somebody is reading aloud and they're getting hoarse that you just kind of wonder if they're going to make it to the end of it or not. But I did, uh, it worked out okay. So, um, I Will Be Complete uh, is a uh, memoir. There's three volumes that are tucked in here, so it's an incredible buy. Um, uh, the uh, first volume, uh, the, the, the story, as I say, is about uh, learning to have autonomy from a difficult parent. And the first volume is about uh, growing up in San Francisco. Uh, my father pioneered the use of cassette tape and uh, signed up Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, which was the number one American band in the 1960s. And in one day, my dad made $5 million that on another day he lost every penny of when Herb Alpert put a tape into the, uh, into the tape deck and it jammed. And he put another tape into the tape deck and that jammed too. And so uh, Herb Alpert pulled out and uh, my dad was leveraged, so fell down. But in between, my parents got divorced and my uh, mom and I moved up to San Francisco. And uh, I was 12 years old one day, and I went off to school. Uh, my mom moved to New York without telling me. So I lived on my own for about four months. That's volume one. 
Uh, that began the uh, kind of a lifelong uh, obsession with trying to find new families. And so uh, I went to a boarding school. Uh, I worked in an independent bookstore in Westwood, uh, Hunter's Books, the late lamented Hunter's Books, where uh, I managed to uh, um, find a, um, a bunch of really interesting artists and writers and dancers and a guy who had imaginary children. Uh, and after he got fired, the imaginary children started writing me letters. And that's how I learned a lot about fiction. And that's volume two. Uh, and volume three, uh, the same week my mother met uh, her soulmate, at the same time I met somebody I thought I was going to marry. And uh, my relationship crashed and burned. And her relationship with a uh, uh, crystal meth addict, who was my age, uh, flourished. And uh, so. Uh, that's kind of just the overview of what it is, and by the end of it, uh, I think uh, uh, you get to the point of understanding what it's like to wish somebody well and uh, kind of take a, a step back from them uh, when, there's, when, there, when, you, when somebody's love is too terrible. Uh, so that's generally speaking what, uh, what, what you get between the covers of I Will Be Complete, um, and I'd love to answer any questions if anybody has anything that they wanted to uh, ask me. Yes? You've done a few interviews now, you've read a few times, you've done some press interviews. How many people have asked you the real name of Peter Charming and you didn't talk about anyone else heard it? Huh. Uh, no, no one's asked. Well, pe people have asked if it's a real name. It's not a real name, no. But uh, nobody has asked if it's a real name, and nobody has. Um, no, nobody. Uh, I was actually I was very surprised. I was up in San Francisco this week. I was positive somebody would know who he was, but no, it's. As I say, it's as if he never existed, but uh, he's there. He's, I mean, I, uh, I know he does. Would you in confidence tell someone or suspecting that they would? Andrew, how badly do you want to know? <laughs> I'm trying to think of it from your point of view, because you describe it in such detail and yeah. loathing, and it seems such an obvious question that you're going to get. Yeah. And you're going to get it one-on-one -on -one with someone, yeah. and you're going to, would you tell them? No. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't think so. No. It's a... Uh, this guy, uh, this guy who haunts the first uh, third of the book, uh, he ended up selling my mother 35 pong machines um, that she put in. Yeah, put in. It was a 70s story, man. <laughs> and um, we ended up. Uh, she ended up putting them in bars around San Francisco, and for a while they were very popular, and then they weren't. He was a con man, um, and he, uh, he did a lot of bad stuff. And uh, he's not somebody that I really uh, need to unearth again in that case. But yeah. Um, how has relocating Southern California um, affected your literary life? Good question. Likewise, um, uh, it's this is great down here. I, I absolutely love living. I, I, up until six months ago, I lived uh, in Telegraph Hill. Um, I had a one-bedroom apartment, um, and it was forty-five hundred dollars a month. So, yeah, right. <laughs> Everyone's like, LA is very unaffordable, except for you know when we come down from San Francisco. It's. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, uh, I look at San Francisco uh, as a spurned lover. Um, my, my girlfriend Sarah always talks about San Francisco as the, as the incredibly hot guy who says all the right things and then like never shows up and you know <laughs> always is like walking down the street catching his reflection in the shop windows and stuff like that. You know that's San Francisco. Um, I love it, but it's no longer uh, hospitable to artists anymore. I don't think um, it's just, it's unaffordable um, and. Uh, you know, it might it might come back eventually. It'll swing back. I would have hated San Francisco in the 1870s too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then. More. Okay. Yeah. Well, to continue, then what what are first? This could be about Peter Charming again. No. But, <laughs> what are first impressions of LA? Oh yeah. And what it is to be. Well, I was born here. 
Um, I was born in uh, Cedars of Lebanon, uh, and uh, so I've moved back and forth frequently. But uh, just uh, being down here, uh, it's incredibly vital. Uh, I uh, love the friendliness. I, I, I actually, the first day I was here, I, uh, I actually I, I called my girlfriend because this thing had happened on the street. And this is going to be hard to explain to people in LA, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. I was driving on Glendale Boulevard, two, two, you know, two lanes, heavy traffic coming each way, and there was a, I had to make a left-hand turn in a place that wasn't a signal. And the oncoming traffic, both lanes stopped. And I pulled over immediately and I called Sarah. I was like, you will never believe what just happened. Because <laughs> in San Francisco, you'd still be there. I mean, people, they do not merge. They're not interested. They're, because the underlying thing about San Francisco is that there's a terror that whatever you're going toward is going to be taken away from you before you get there. And so you have to get there one car beforehand. And um, in LA, I understand. You now, people, I, there are maniacs out there. I know that you know one in about 15% of the drivers out there have obviously never driven before. But in San Francisco, it's about 90%. And I'm not, I'm not even kidding about that. Um, so, LA, I, I like, I like that this place is a city that people actually admit that people need to get along around here and, and have some sort of uh, um, intuition about making eye contact with each other and things like that. That it's not terrifying. Um, and uh, I've, I've, had a, I've had a good time meeting uh, writers around here. And the other thing I really like is that uh, there's a diversity of uh, um, interests in what, what, what their go people's goals are. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's not everybody is developing an app. Um, it's uh, <laughs> other things, you know. It's, uh, it's great. I'm loving it. I feel vitalized. Steve Sherman. Hi, Steve. <laughs> Oh, good question. Yeah, um, I like everybody else. My attention spans totally disrupted uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, I just uh, I just read um, "If Bill Street Could Talk" by James Baldwin, which um, you know I absolutely love. It's a it's great. I mean, not just for his uh, observations on society, but his his just his language and his ease with character was really uh, invigorating to read. While I was writing this, I couldn't read any sort of memoir. I, I, I get really competitive in my head. <laughs> and like either, it's like it's, if the book isn't, if the book isn't as good as mine, I say, ha, you know, and if it's better, it's, ah, you know, so. Uh, that was articulate. Um, uh, but uh, I did read Casanova's memoirs. Um, it's, which are fantastic. Uh, they're really good uh, and, uh, yeah, there, yeah, 12 volumes, um, and so many adventures, and it's, it's very exciting. That's one of the things that really got me going. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, can you pinpoint the moment that you went from uh, fiction to your own life? It must have been a while back, right? And when did you start this? So, um, there's an anecdote I tell in the book, and this is 100% true, which is, um, uh, I took a class, I, was, I, was, uh, I, I always wanted to take fiction writing classes. My mom wanted to be a writer. And one of the few things that she uh, that she wrote that I saw, uh, she wrote her own life story from my point of view, and it was called "My Mother's Lovers and Other Reasons I'm Class Valedictorian." <laughs> I really love looking at people's faces after I say that because I was like 15. I'm like, this is normal. <laughs> um, so I, there's there's been I, I, fiction has always been uh, a thing that's been in, in my family. Though, uh, People, my mom was always interested in it, and uh, I, when I was 19, I was taking a class with a writer named Ishmael Reed in, in Berkeley, and Ishmael has this 
crazy assignment that he gives out to the 18 and 19 years old, old knowing they will fail, which is you have to write a story first person opposite sex point of view. So I did the Kobayashi Maru thing of taking my mom's letters and typing them up. And they, I, what I did is I, just, I, I, I used her language and I took her letters to turn them into a narrative story. I didn't change much. I turned it in and there was 100% universal agreement in the class that no woman ever thought this way in history of C minus. Um, there's more to that, but that's kind of, when I started to realize that my mom's life only made sense as satire, that I felt that there was something just beyond me. But I kept on trying to tell it as fiction, because I had this idea when I was in my 20s that memoir equaled failure, that like it was a failure of imagination to write a memoir, that, or it was really just pure egotism. It's like, you know, you have enjoyed my paintings, now look at the brushes I used to make them. <laughs> and uh, it took me a while. I was, um, uh, I, I went to UC Irvine and uh, Jeffrey Wolf was uh, leading, the, and he, in addition to being a very good fiction writer, wrote, you know, the seminal um, uh, thing like set off the wave of American memoir, Duke of Deception. And uh, I took a class with him and I started to understand that you can use the tools of fiction uh, except for the making stuff up part um, in writing memoir, and that got me interested in, in it at that point. So I was in his class when I started, I, I got the first few pages of what ended up in this, and that was 22 years ago, something like that. Then you wrote two novels. Then I wrote two novels, yeah, yeah. And then after Sunnyside came out, I had like five different projects. Uh, the post-apocalyptic watership down, I'm sorry, that's never going to finish that one. Um, <laughs> Uh, I wrote a few screenplays. Uh, I, um, uh, I I co-wrote something for the Flying Adventure Hour. Um, for, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I I tried. I I wrote a whole the first third of this. I wrote a draft of it and I sent it to my agent. And uh, Susan read it and she said that you should get a pen and take notes. And so I took notes and like 45 minutes later she was done and I said, uh, she said, do you have any questions? I said, yeah, did you like anything? And she said, honey, don't ever change your font. That's 100% true, that story. Um, and uh, the, the pain in the ass thing is she was right. It's a good font. <laughs> Courier News, just, it's, uh, it's clear, but the rest of the book was crap, there was no good. And so I had to go back and rewrite it a few times, and it took me about five years to get to page one of this. And once I got it, it sort of rolled out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that first draft, um, yeah. I think it's really interesting that you have a copy and three volumes. Was that something you personalized from the beginning, or kind of came out organically extra? It came about because Knopf refused to make it seven volumes. <laughs> um, I, I they, but they were right. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't know what the, I didn't really know what the, this was going to pivot on my relationship with my mom. I just knew that I had like sort of seven eras in my life I wanted to talk about. And there would have been some padding. Um, but it, it fell into three volumes relatively quickly when I realized that there were three, I started to think about them, that the, the that stories I like and movies I like and, and pieces of fiction I like have a bit of a, have like a, a, the pressure of time on them. And I knew that, um, for instance, that there was my, when I, the summer I turned 19 when I worked in this independent bookstore, enough stuff had happened to me that it felt like a whole story. 
And so I wrote that out, and then um, I went back in in the drafts and thought, okay, how does this actually fit into the larger thing? And, and they started, things started to fall into three volumes as I explored this story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read your modern love piece last week. Yeah, yes, yeah, last Sunday's time. So. Um, was that uh, was that coincidental, or was it time to come out with this? What compelled that story? What compelled that story? You want the honest? Okay, I'm gonna, okay don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I know of Modern Love. It's not something that I had really pursued, but my, my, uh, I was talking to my publicist, and she said, well, you know, the holy grail of trying to do something before having a book come out is write a Modern Love comp. It, it don't, don't even bother trying, because you can't ever time it right. It's really hard to do. And, I, I, I thought, okay, if you tell me something's impossible, then I immediately I throw myself into it. And uh, so I, I thought about it because uh, we, we had just moved down, my, my girlfriend and I had just moved down to, to Silver Lake, and it was just really how many people could not comprehend. The, 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 the basic part of the modern love column is that we, we, we got a duplex together, and I live in one unit, and Sarah lives in the other. And uh, this makes sense to people who uh, have been in long-term relationships. Um, and, uh, but, but in explaining it, as we were going along, every step of the way, people couldn't comprehend that that's what we were actually going to do. It just seemed bizarre to people who were actually, you know, what did it mean about us in our relationship? And actually, it's, it's, it's a strength. I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's a good way to live. We're really enjoying it. Um, and, and I felt... Like, I hadn't seen a lot of people talking about that exactly. So after my rather cynical beginning of, of writing it, it actually got into it when I was, I said, actually, this really does feel like what love is for me, you know, and, and, and uh, it, it worked out. Yeah. Well, where, where are you keeping your spot in each uh, so yeah, part of part of the. Because uh, I feel like I'm on her side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So one of the reasons we don't live together is I keep I leave, I leave the sponge in the sink. I just always do, no matter no matter. And, and you leave it wet. And wet, yeah, I know. The worst. It's true. I totally agree <laughs> with you. I look at the sponge. Sure. No, I understand. You squeeze it and you put it in the little basket over. You know, you just you just do. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where I, I hold myself in contempt for not <laughs> taking the damn thing out of the sink and putting it up there. I know it. I know it's wrong. And then, you know, I just like, when Sarah comes over and like, looks down, I'm thinking, oh, God, I did it again, you know? And, and luckily, I only, like, it's just me beating myself up for it now. But yeah, no, I, I it's 50-50 at this point. But thank you for asking. You're, you're better. Yeah, I've, I've gotten better. But yeah. you've gotten worse at it, right? No. I always bring it out and put it in. <laughs> but I'm not, I've not gotten better at co sleeping. No, no, yeah. yeah. Sarah decided that the reason we don't live together is Sarah sleeps like a starfish. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, other questions? Oh. Are you the only child in your siblings? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm only only progeny of uh, of the union of my parents, but I uh, have uh, half brothers, um, and uh, I have a step brother. that before having a book come out. I, I, I really put all that away. I really, uh, I didn't, 
think about it. So thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, the terror is rising. I mean, um, I, there's people. The balance for me was I felt that the more specific I was about my own circumstances, the more universal it would be, um, and that people could plug themselves into the storyline. And so far, that seems to be. I mean, people seem to be pretty kind about it. You know, um, my one of my favorite comments so far was from Mark Childress, who's a, a friend who blurbed the book. He also he also like sent me a text saying, "Also, I didn't put this in the blurb, but I'm really glad you weren't afraid to make yourself an asshole in the book." <laughs> 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 Just me. <laughs> yeah. okay. um, well, thank you for, for coming out. I'll sign books and uh, hang out. This has been great. You guys are You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.